This is the Coast and Country podcast from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with Helen Mark. And they're off. The Olympic marathon is underway. Several hundred runners are now jogging past me, numbers pinned to their chests, looking all fresh and ready for all those miles ahead of them. Now, I don't want you to think that I am jumping the gun because this is an Olympic marathon. Good luck, everyone. For this week's Open Country, I'm in rural Shropshire on Wenlock Edge, a magnificent stretch of wooded escarpment. This place, thanks to a local Victorian doctor, is the birthplace of the modern-day Olympics. So how did it all start here? So here I am with Helen Clare Cromarty, who's one of the organisers and a historian for the Wenlock Olympian Society. So tell me about how and when it started, Helen. In 1850, William Pennybrooks, who was then a doctor, surgeon, magistrate, apothecary in the big borough of Wenlock, he saw the working men... They would work in the agriculture, in the fields, they'd work in the quarries and also in the forestry and they did nothing but work from early morning to late at night and he wanted to give them something more to exercise their bodies and minds. In fact, it was muscular Christianity. It was to be fit to fight for their country and have a chance of surviving. And he set up the annual Olympian Games that would be held once a year where they would train all year and come fit for the purpose. So they would be dressed for the part and they would take part in an orderly fashion. And what sort of sports did he have in mind? Those very early sports, there were seven of them. I mean, you have to remember he was inventing a sports meeting. It had never been done before. That was his invention. And they had a cricket match. They had a running race for under sevens. And then for the older ones, also a running race. So the marathon and the half marathon today is very appropriate. Yes, um, that's right. But there was also hopping on one leg. Fifty yards. I mean, he was inventing things to do. There was also leaping in height and leaping in distance. Wow! Just mm. just to keep the bodies active and the minds in good form, this was his idea, and yes. he started it locally. Yes. But then, how did he become the founding father of the modern day Olympics? Because the games from then, little running clubs started up all over the country, athletic clubs, gymnastics clubs. But more than that, all through his life, he tried to get physical education in schools onto the national curriculum. Then Baron Pierre de Coubertin, a young multi-millionaire Frenchman Great educationalist he was wasn't he? Absolutely. And he wanted to do the same and he came to Much Wenlock Brooks invited him, this 27-year-old multi-millionaire to see this 81-year-old country doctor doctor. from nowhere (laughs) and he arrived in the pouring rain in Much Wenlock they put on a games and he was thrilled. He saw the pageantry of the procession, the award ceremonies and these wonderful young people taking part in sport. When he left, he went on that train with the blueprint for a modern Open Olympic Games. We can now just see the backs of our runners, really, as they're setting off from here at Craven Arms. This wasn't one of the original starting points for the races, Helen, was it? No, but you've chosen it today because of the setting and the route that they're going to take across the Wenlock Edge. That's right, yes. Well, you couldn't have chosen a better person to start the race this year. Um, Just as we sort of wave goodbye to the runners, we can just catch a few words with Jonathan Edwards, an Olympian, European world 
champion, triple jumper, absolutely tremendous. And I just wonder if you started off hopping as the good doctor had in his original games. People often ask me where the triple jump originated from. They did used to do multiple jumping in the ancient games and you read some of Pinder's writings and he talks about, you know, 60 feet for what they thought was a standing long jump, but clearly it wasn't a standing long jump. And here we had it in the the Wenlock Olympian Games as well, multiple hopping. So, yeah, I could have had a career back then in the day. I mean, this has been running for a long, long time, this set of games, but the focus is on it because of the London Olympics. We've sent runners off now to head across the Wenlock Edge. What are your thoughts as you sort of see them departing on this particular marathon? First of all, I'm incredibly proud to have been appointed as, as the president of the Wenlock Olympian Society. Uh, and it's somehow kind of appropriate that I suppose somebody who's part of the organising committee for London 2012 is also the president in the year when the Games is in London. Because we wouldn't be having a London 2012 if it wasn't for the Olympian Society, which was started in 1850 by Dr William Penny Brooks. And I came here to Much Wenlock for the first time in 2006 as part of the London 2012 Roadshow, immediately after we'd won the right to host the Games having no idea about the role that William Penny Brooks played as an Olympian who'd been to four Olympic Games as a competitor, two as a a broadcaster. And so for me, one of the the great legacies of London 2012 is that this story here in a sleepy part of Shropshire is better known because we all know about Dakuba Town, we all know about the ancient Olympics in Olympia, but we don't know about the Wenlock Olympian Society, much Wenlock and Dr William Penny Brooks. And also with us today is Chris Dunkerley of the National Trust, and Chris, you were you were responsible for designing part of the route. That's right, it's all it, my fault. Yeah, <laughs> they'll all be looking for you at the end of it. And there's a marathon and a half marathon, and right. you run through and across yeah, Wenlock Edge. Yeah, and quite a lot of length, National Trust full, property. The full length of Wenlock Edge, which is about 17 and a half miles. So we've had to add a couple of extra little bits, one of which is a climb up to the Flounders Folly, which uh, comes in at about, about four miles, and we can actually see it over in the distance, right up on the skyline there. Yeah. Uh, goes through a variety of habitats, go through woodland and then field edges and open glades, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's a really pleasant route to run, and then finishing in much Wenlock's fantastic. Well, Chris, if I join you again, perhaps at the half marathon at Wilderhope Manor, which is a National Trust that property, is, yeah, that'd be brilliant. so if we organise to meet there later on, that's great. That yeah, would be, I'll see that you there. would be terrific. And I now am going to sort of make a little bit more of an exploration al- along the edge at a gentle saunter. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing speedy about me. Well, the runners are on their way through this magnificent landscape here in Shropshire across Wenlock Edge. But what is this edge? How is it created? It's a very, very distinctive sort of spine, if you imagine, a sort of almost like 17, 80 mile spine that runs through Shropshire. The best way to find out is to come to the very edge of the escarpment. I'm with Dr Peter Toghill, who is a geologist, and Dr Ian Dormer, who's a landscape archaeologist. So you brought me to the edge. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Tell me about this formation of this place, what it consists of. As you said, Helen, we're right on the edge of Wenlock Edge, looking down a steep drop to about the valley two or 300 feet below us. And we're standing on a viewpoint called Ipikins Rock. And this viewpoint is on the large piece of rock, which is, in fact, one of the largest fossilised coral reefs on Wenlock Edge. Now, Wenlock Edge is the longest escarpment made of limestone, And in the limestone we find big areas of these fossilised coral reefs. And the story is that these limestone and reefs were formed 425 million years ago in the shallow subtropical sea on the other side of the world. 
formed by you know the, the breakdown of all the trillions and all those creatures. Well, well in There's... the warm in the warm subtropical seas, a bit like the Caribbean today, you would find lots of animals living with limestone shells, and they would die, and the limestone would form on the bottom. But in these clear seas, we're talking about seas only maybe a ten or twenty meters deep, and the coral reefs would grow just as in the Caribbean today. But at that time, 425 million years ago, we were right on the other side of the world at the latitude of present-day Tahiti. Why do we have this ridge here in this landscape? Well, this ridge was originally under the sea, under a shallow sea, and has been tipped up by tectonic forces. And those forces probably were when southern Britain collided with northern Britain at the end of what we call a Silurian period. We're looking down the sheer face of the escarpment. Behind us is a more gentle slope that we call the dip slope. And it's that sharp face, that's where you get the magnificent uh, fossils and things This is from, where you get it? the exposure of rock. Uh, and the thing about this is that the rocks around here were famous. I mean, this particular term... Wenlock limestone and the Wenlock series geologically was invented way back in 1830s and 1840s by a very world-famous geologist called Sir Roderick Murchison. And he named these rocks around here Silurian and he named the Wenlock series. And it's because of this rock, it's bringing Ian in here, the prominence of this rock in this landscape and the woodland that runs along it, you can understand why it was a natural attraction for habitation from you know centuries and centuries back. Very much so. In actual fact, this is the biggest concentration of woodland in South Shropshire. If you look at the aerial photograph of this area, it stands out as the most significant landscape feature there is, really, for centuries, really, right up until the advent of coal, I suppose. Woodland, really, was the... Well, wood was the most vital resource after food because it provided your housing, your raw materials and your fuel. And this resource was exploited by the local populations in the valleys below who all had common rights in the woodland where they could come up and cut wood and they could graze animals and take wood for housing and fuel and so forth. So they worked in the forest but lived below? Pretty well, yes, yes. If you were here even a hundred years ago, this would have been a very, very busy place full of people making things. It was an industrial landscape, as most woodlands were. It was full of people making things, burning charcoal, cutting wood and um, coppicing the trees. Woodland has two levels of archaeology. There's archaeology in woodland and there's the archaeology of woodland. And here we have um, examples of both, really. There's Iron Age activity on the on Wenlock Edge, but there's also the archaeology of woodland, which is what's left of the processes that went on in the woodland, the saw pits, the charcoal hearths, all the trackways, the hollowways, which we'll look at later on. Well, should we go and see if we can find some of those now? Because I we love sh- the thought of, you know, trackways being hollowed out well, by are. the passage of people down through well, the Well, this is a process that can take up to about 300 years of mm. hoofs, of feet and wheels, and this place is absolutely covered in, in them. Right, this is, we've come out onto Blakeway Hollow, which is probably a medieval road. It's certainly been here for centuries, and uh, as we walk along a little bit, you'll see where the, the, the ruts that have been left by wagons running up and down here over centuries. It's about four feet wide. It's about four feet and, wide. And um, hedgerows are up on banks, yeah. you know, higher up, because it's been worn away, even uh, though it is hard get, limestone, as I can see there yes, now. As we get into the woods, it becomes very much narrower and very much deeper. It's about three metres deep in places and about two metres wide. So but there was transportation more along the top of the edge for, yes, for, for humans just travelling well and this for... Is, this is taking the limestone out from the quarries 
But look how uneven it is yeah. underfoot. What a jiggling journey it must yeah. have been. Well, of course, this was the main route until 1862 when the railway opened, and that really revolutionised the transport network in this area, and it gave a huge boost to the lime industry as well. Mm. As you'll see that the edge of the the edge of the track is worn down. It's quite clear in places that you can actually see where the wheels have worn the edge of the of, of the track away. In this field on the right, we can just see quarries very oh, clearly, the yes. and, and the lime kiln is quite visible. Yes, on that yeah. side. So we you have the see. mound, and then the, you know that's a built the, archway. That's the stoke hole that you can see. Stoke hole on that side, and then the, the hole underneath mm. it, where that heat and intensity yes. and labour would have been. There are mounds within mm. this field which are obviously now all covered in grass and there are a few trees growing. Lovely wild flowers, got the oxide daisy there, so speckled with white, butterflies flitting everywhere, purple clovers and, I mean, a tremendous range of, of grasses. Much of the edge is triple SI and it's a legacy of all this activity that's gone on in the past. We're looking at archaeological features in woodland and this is very much a landscape which has a lot of potential really, maybe things that we haven't seen yet. We, we know that there were Iron Age farmers in the area, there were two Roman villas not far away. We're very much within the hinterland of Roxeter which was the fourth biggest city in Roman Britain. A lot of what you can see now is, is really the, the, the banks and ditches and the, the wood banks that were put in place really to stop animals grazing into the coppice. Mm -hmm. But there will be other things in the woodland I'm sure that will come over over a period of years. Oh, what stories lie beneath. Absolutely. I have a better understanding now of the landscape that our runners are going to be sort of traipsing through. Now, and I've come to the point where the half marathon is starting, and this is Wilderhope Manor. It's a National Trust property. It's a youth hostel, and there's a great gathering of people here who are just as eager to start the race as they were way back at Craven Arms. The half marathon has been started here at Wilderhope Manor and I'm standing underneath um, one of the gable walls and a magnificent set of red brick chimneys on the top there, back with Chris Dunkerley. You're the ranger of this site. That is some building, it's isn't a fantastic it? fantastic building. Back to? Uh, 16th century. It was all renovated in 1936 by John Cadbury, uh, who then donated it to the National Trust with a view to it being run as a youth hostel so young people could come and holiday in such a beautiful setting. And then the National Trust manages what sort of area do you work through? It's a very long strip of woodland. I think it's the longest strip of woodland in England, continuous woodland. Uh, it's very narrow. We own about a nine-mile stretch of it from much Wenlock down as far as Rushbury. Does it have any specific features that you're sort of proud of in this landscape? The limestone grasslands are really special full of orchids. Lots, I saw a few bee orchids the other day, common spotted orchids and pyramidal orchids and that sort of thing. And I walk along the crest of the ridge, which is the most floristically rich. That's a lovely way of spending a nice sunny day. Not that we're getting many of those at the moment. <laughs> and uh, that's the landscape you have the runners going through. You, you yeah, plan the route. They pass through a bit of everything. So enclosed woodland where they're on really narrow tracks. Uh, nice open woodlands and uh, wildflower meadows, 
farmland so that at the moment they're just headed off down the edge of some farmer's fields and in a few minutes they'll rise up through some woodland and then back into farmland where they'll have a bit of a squelch along the top of the ridge there. Right, <laughs> you haven't made it easy for them by No, not means. at all, it's a, it's a really tough endurance challenge this that they're taking part in. Our plan is, Chris, we will see you at the end yes, when all I'm the running is done. Yes, I'm way very shortly, just Good. a couple of jobs to finish off here <laughs> and then I'll see you down there. Okay. This is a, a pathway again, but so different from the one I was on. This is the one with very high embankments and obviously being carved out by man. And with Paul Evans, who is a nature writer and broadcaster. So I suspect this is an old railway line. It's now it, a great walk for people. It's a great walk for people. And it's very atmospheric, actually, because you go through these cuttings through the limestone, so you really do get a sense of being embedded in stone. Our intention is to leave much Wenlock behind, which we're just on the outskirts of now, and climb up to what particular point, Paul? Well, we're going to nip up to Windmill Hill, which will be blindingly obvious in a moment <laughs> as we get through the trees. This is proper limestone grassland. This is classic limestone grassland, full of flowers. I mean, look at this. There's ringlets, meadow brown butterflies, grasshoppers, crickets. And we, as we walk up, oh, look, there's a little bright blue damselfly, oh. small heath butterfly. Yes, with tints of, of, of terracotta on its wings. And it's feeding on um, wild thyme. In purple flower, clinging onto the slope. Yeah. And then as we move further towards, which is, I presume, the base of the windmill, yeah. as was, you see how there's a yellowing begins yeah. as we go higher well, up? Well, that yellowing is ladies' bed straw. And uh, we'll just have a whiff of that because it's a knockout. It's redolent of um, medieval bedrooms. <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know the edge well. You've walked it yourself. You take people out. So many people have written about it, poets. I suppose our best-known poet is A.E. Houseman, who was not local, although he didn't come from far away, but Bromsgrove, you know, is foreign to us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure what he was looking for, but what he found was a, was a sort of a, a nostalgic melancholy in this landscape. Anyway... We've been in a sort of cultural side headlock because of this poem, us Shropshire lads, for, <laughs> for about 100 years. This is Houseman. Into my heart an air that kills From yon far country blows What are those blue-remembered hills? What spires? What farms are those? That is a land of lost content I see its shining plain And happy highways where I went And cannot come again you know, it's as if it's a place that's quite fleeting, that it exists in a, a sort of a realm, a dimension, and then it's gone. And then you feel that this world that you ached for has just disappeared. And to a certain extent, when we look at the wildflowers on, on Windmill Hill, we listen to the crickets. They belong to a world that's virtually disappeared mm. in Britain. They belong to a time and an ecology and a history that created these places. And they're so surprising to us because they're so few now. They're a real relic of this, you know, land of lost content. 
That's a wonderful place to be headlocked into, though. <laughs> it has a, a unique quality about it, this elongated strip of limestone, which just sits proud yeah. of the rest of Shropshire. Yeah. The thing about Wenlock Edge is that it's very jealous about its views. There are very few places where you can actually see out of the edge itself. So I can take you to one that I think is, is really good and very few people go to it. Okay. Now this is a view. Just come out of the woodland, there's a, a hay field in front of us and then beyond that, Paul... Well, just come through the, the little gate here. Now you really get a sense of being on the, the scarp slope of the edge, the sharp end, looking, we're actually looking northwest. And that's the reeking. This other mound big, beyond See the big, the big hill yeah. there that also appears in the Houseman poem about on Wenlock Edge, the wood's in trouble, right? Well, this is the wood that's potentially in trouble. <laughs> And it stretches from about here. This is about the northern point of what most people think of as Wenlock Edge. And this line of trees that you can see that we're standing at the top of. You see that line going that way? It rises up mm. and over and then on and, and on. And on and on for about 18 miles. And that's the, the steep wooded slope of, of Wenlock Edge. And what we're looking at now, and it's very hazy, these are the blue remembered hills, but they are very blue actually, because you can't really see anything much except a, a sort of a pale blue haze. So that moment in the landscape was articulated in that poem. But so many of the stories of this place, they need to be talked about, remembered. I've been writing about this place for a, a long time, and. The more I write about it, the more I feel a sense of responsibility to talk about a history, an unwritten history. There's almost no oral tradition left either because a lot of the people who were engaged in, say, quarrying and lime burning took those memories to the grave with them. I think it, there's a sort of a responsibility to, to try and include that history into what I write, as well as the sort of natural history, because the two are very much you know, linked strongly together. They depend on each other. I'm back in Much Wenlock on what's known as Church Green, the old church and all the graveyards around us and all these runners and their families milling about. And I think I can just grab a last few words with Helen Clare Cromarty and Chris Dunkerley from the National Trust. There might be one or two last runners to come home, but you could say that your first marathon and half marathon along the Wenlock Edge has been... A great success. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Uh, really good day. Everyone's said how they've enjoyed the route. Although it was tough, everyone said it was tough, but everyone's also said they've enjoyed it. Uh, I think most of them have brought half of the edge back with them as well. <laughs> the uh, and legs. people on the green here, just down on the church green watching, have had a really good afternoon. Yeah, so you're really, I can just see, you're just so glad it's yeah. all gone well and people have come home safely and they're saying, we love the run. Yeah, we love the place that we were running through. Even in, in, a, in a way, I'm glad it's over. But I, I've really, I have really enjoyed it. It's, for me, it's quite nerve-wracking when people set off when you've marked the route out, 
and it's always a, a worry that they won't get to the next checkpoint. So it's always nice when you hear, oh, the first runner's got to this checkpoint and that checkpoint, and it just, just becomes an enjoyable day once you know the route's working OK and that everyone's making their way along it. And thinking back to how these games started yeah. and the special history that they have and in this year, what are your thoughts? To me, it's been absolutely fantastic that the very first Wenlock Olympian Games Marathon has taken place in the Olympic year. How special is that? How wonderful is that? Does it help people recognise a special quality of the landscape, the place and its history? Yes, I think it does. I think Wenlock Edge is special and I think that this whole area, it's historic. It's got enormous historic links. In this area you have the birth of industry in Ironbridge. You have the origin of the species with Charles Darwin who was born just over the edge there in the same year as William Penny Books and you've got the birth, the rebirth of the modern Olympic Games. How about that for a county? It's amazing. (laughs) 